Welcome to the Bottom Line Off Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Bader Meinhof. Uh, we talk about left-wing urban German terrorism of the 1970s, student radicalism, other related ephemera. Um, this is the only podcast devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Bader Meinhof gang, the Red Army Faction. Um, and at this point, it's apparently on like a twice yearly podcast. I'm hoping to put up more and more, but today's a really great one. Um, I, I have an interview with a man who was a very direct witness to the, um, May, late May, 1972 bombings of the Campbell barracks in Heidelberg, the U S um, army base. And, uh, it's really fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, number one is there's a lot of lore that's sprung up around this particular bombings that really played into the trials of the leadership of the Red Army faction later. And in this interview, um, uh, this gentleman I interview absolutely clears these things up in a way that's, I don't think, ever been cleared up before in anything else I've ever read. Um, and those bits of lore are that, one, um, this bombing took place at the tail end of their May 1972 bombing campaign. It started in Frankfurt in early May, where they blew up the, um, they, they left two bombs at the uh, U.S. base in Frankfurt and killed uh, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Bloomquist. Um, then they bombed several other um, places across Germany, and they went to Heidelberg in late May and left two bombs. And one of those bombs killed three soldiers, which you're going to hear about today. And one of the stories was that one of the bombs in the building um, where one of the soldiers was killed knocked over a Coca-Cola machine and crushed him. And this was very amusing to a lot of the um, terrorists because it seemed like this perfect symmetry to them that 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 uh, this American had been killed by this symbol of the Coca-Cola capitalism, imperialism that they were so dedicated to fighting. And you're going to find in my interview with him that the truth around this particular story. Um, secondarily, and much more importantly, is um, what was going on in this building that was bombed, because this building housed some secret American computers. And the during the trial, it emerged that, that the RAF claimed that they that these computers were being used to direct, I think, troop movements of American troops in Vietnam. And, and this attack was specifically designed supposedly to help forestall the, you know, waning days of the Vietnam war and, and put a, put a damper on the American efforts there because that was part of the reason they were doing this bombing was, was, or these bombings was to attack America over their involvement in Vietnam. And, and as you listen to this interview, you'll hear the absolute truth. Um, and definitely none of this has ever been, um, talked about ever before in any place I've ever heard of. And I probably know more about this than any other person. So it's fascinating to finally hear somebody who can share the truth. So I hope you enjoy my coming interview with, um, Alan Phillips, who was a direct witness. Um, also I have another bit of big news. I just completed a short, a documentary short um, called BMW Brand Terror, which I'm going to post on my website either by the time you listen to this or shortly thereafter. And it is uh, about a 15, 20 minute documentary exploring how BMW as a car brand became utterly and inexorably intertwined with the Bader Meinhof gang in the early seventies, how their name became totally associated with left-wing um, terrorism, yet also how this connection did not seem to ultimately hurt the brand. And in fact, it paralleled their kind of rise to be in the world's hippest major car manufacturer. Um, I put a lot of energy into it and I did a lot of it as a, as kind of an exercise in helping develop my skills with graphic design and other stuff. So hopefully it looks, um, appealing and interesting, but I definitely encourage you guys to all, um, check it out. I think I'm going to offer it for sale. So if you want to have your own copy, you can, you'll be able to buy a DVD of it. Um, otherwise just watch it online. Hopefully you enjoy it. Um, no charge, <laughs> just my gift to you. Um, although making it and talking to this uh, gentleman, it 
kind of made me cringe a little bit because um, talking to Mr. Phillips about his three friends and colleagues who were killed um, in my documentary, I show, and I thought it was important to show very, some very quick snippets of some of the devastation that these people caused. Um, And it includes shots of, of some of their victims, including some of the victims of the Heidelberg bombing and, and, um, and I put that together and then I talked to Mr. Phillips and he's talking about his friend who I've always heard as read as Charles Peck. And he describes his name as chip and, you know, hearing about that, but then also seeing, um, seeing Mr. Peck and, 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 uh, what happened to him. It just, I don't know. It made me queasy. And, uh, and I think, but I, I'm glad I put it in there. I think it's important because I think, Um, so many people tend to glamorize for, for, for not justifiable reasons, but for, for reasons that are obvious, um, why these, these terrorists seem kind of cool and, and exciting and interesting, but they sometimes forget about how devastating they were to people and what kind of damage they wrought. So I, I'm glad I put those images in the documentary. Anyway, um, also, hopefully, I am going to be shortly going to be interviewing the director of a new fantastic, so I hear, documentary um, that deals, that interviews and focuses on the daughter of Ulrika Meinhof, as well as the daughter of a prominent female leader of the Japanese Red Army, which was a, which was a similar group that was active in the 70s in Japan. And by all accounts, it's fantastic. And I'm very, very much looking forward to um, speaking with him. And I also have in the can, which I lost for a while and just found again, an interview with a scholar who just published a new book about Ulrika Meinhof, and I'll post that shortly as well. So without further ado, um, I hope you enjoy this interview with Alan Phillips. It is honestly fascinating. Okay. So uh, the reason why I'm talking to you, uh, Mr. Alan Phillips, is because you were uh, witness to the um, bombing in uh, late May of 1972 and at uh, Campbell Barracks um, in Heidelberg, Germany. Is that right? That's correct. So what were you doing in uh, at Campbell Barracks at the time? What was your role? My, my role, I was a computer operator in the building where the... Uh, the bomb was set off. Uh, as you know, there were two bombs that day. One was by our computer center, and the other one was by a communications tower. And the um, and people that have visited my website know that there was uh, two soldiers that were killed at the computer center, and I mean, I'm sorry, three soldiers that were killed at the three. computer center, yeah. and and over at the 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 communications tower, there was nobody. Um, injured or or killed there. Um, right. So you knew the the folks that that were killed at the center. I imagine you worked with all of them. Absolutely, I I knew them very well. Uh, I wouldn't say, but I didn't know them, you know, like on a personal level or a social mm-hmm. level, um, because up until that point, uh, I was in Germany by myself, and I had just gotten promoted, and my wife and one-year-old daughter had just arrived. So, you know, I, for all intents and purposes, I was like a single guy, uh, and um, Ron Woodward and Clyde Bonner were married, you know, family, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's really unfortunate that my family didn't get to meet their families because they were, they were really nice, uh, nice guys, nice people. Tell me about the the day. What you remember of the day, and what were, what were you doing on that day? Um, well, like I said, I was a computer operator, and and normally I would be working the afternoon shift, which generally started around three or three thirty, and and went till about eleven o'clock. We we didn't always have a midnight shift, so I was usually on the afternoons. But that that specific day. I was uh, asked to work during the day. I don't remember specifically why, but it was not computer-related. I, I think it was like cleaning up a parade field or something like that. And uh, I reported in to Captain Bonner at about 3 o'clock, maybe 3.30. It might have been a little later. It might have been like 4 o'clock, 4.30, something like that. 
at, that I had worked all morning and I wouldn't be into work that evening. And um, I got on my bicycle and went back to my apartment. Uh, like I said, my wife and daughter had just arrived in Germany, I think a week before. And, uh, you know, we hadn't seen each other in several months. Yeah, so the, probably and the last thing you so, wanted so to any, be was on base. Yeah, so, so anyhow, I got home. I would say it was probably close to 4.30. And uh, we were eating dinner when the bombs went off. And uh, I could tell from the smoke and, and the sound that it had come from Campbell Barracks. And within minutes, uh, my la- I didn't have a phone. My landlord's phone um, went off, and in her broken English, she said, you're on alert, and I had to go back. Hmm. So I had to get, get dressed back up in my uh, uniform and bicycle back to the barracks. I only lived about... 10-minute bicycle ride. I lived in uh, Kirchheim, which is just outside of Heidelberg, and bicycle back. Um, you had mentioned, I think, in your email, you know, what was security like beforehand and what was it like after. Yeah. In my in my opinion, security was pretty lax prior to, uh, well, let's put it this way. Prior to the Frankfurt bombing, I think anyone could come in and out of the Campbell Barracks without a problem. And then when the bombing took place in Frankfurt, which wasn't too far, uh, you know, it was shortly before the bombing in Heidelberg. It was about two weeks before. Yeah, things tightened up a little bit on base. You know, they were only letting uh, American-plated vehicles, that sort of thing. Uh, But I wouldn't call it tight security. You know, not like uh, lean in, talk to the person, ask them what their their business was. It was more like, oh, there's a car, American plates, wave them through. My, my understanding in this case was that, um, you know, I've never been totally certain exactly who participated. We know Ermgard Mueller was one of them. My understanding that it was members of the Bader Meinhof gang that were women basically dressed yeah. as wives or girlfriends. They were driving cars yeah. that had stolen American plates on them. And my understanding yeah. is they were essentially waved through and it was two vehicles. Yeah, that, that was the, um, that's the information that was given to us, you know, as uh, we, we all became sort of a security force from then on, you know, watching for suspicious things and suspicious looking people. But the problem with the headquarters, though, is you had NATO troops there, too. You know, you had you had uh, French soldiers there. You had German soldiers there. You know, you were constantly saluting people that you had no idea what their, their rank was because they looked like they were generals in that army. And they, they could have been corporals, for all we knew. <laughs> so, it was, so it was a little bit confusing, it sounds like. I imagine the same thing applied even more so at the uh, Frankfurt um, base because that was because yeah that was, was an officers club I think yeah yeah there, there was actually two bombs that went off there as well one went off in a sort of a central gathering spot separate from the yeah. officers club but where the lieutenant colonel was killed was at the at the club yeah. so so you get on your bicycle and you're and you make it over to Campbell Barracks what do you remember seeing when you got on base what was going on there um. There was a lot of um, officers. Uh, there was a lot of uh, medical staff. Uh, there was um, a lot of protection around the the bomb. Well, I didn't go near the communications tower. I went back to the computer center where I work, yep. and that's where that's where the 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 lethal bomb was set off. I watched. I watched the video clip of the fellow that you videoed who was like a uh, – was he a public relations officer? I think he, was a, he like was a civilian. I think he was like an assistant to the public information officer that worked there at the time. Yeah. And then he'd been there for yeah. the pr- – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. Um, so he was standing in front of the building that I work, and – he pointed to the very spot where the bomb was. I don't actually remember the bomb being exactly where he pointed, 
Um, if you look in the background, you'll see a fenced-in area mm-hmm. in there and, and another door. That fence was not there when I worked there, and that's the door that blew in and killed Chip Beck or Charles, excuse me, Charles Peck. Yeah. Uh, Chip, we called him Chip. Uh, and and in some of the narrative, I don't think that gentleman specifically said it, but in some of the narrative, they called that building a clubhouse. And I think after 39 years, I can tell you that was not a clubhouse. And and Chip was not killed by a Coke machine falling on him. He was blown up by the bomb and blown into a water cooler and pinned between the wall and a water cooler, which, you know, was about six inches of clearance. Mm. And and it was, I'll call it um, a man trap in that it was a highly secretive computer installation that you, you had to go in one door, show your ID, and then be buzzed into the second door. And that's where, so there was about a uh, six to eight foot hallway, if you will, where there was very high security. And then just after that hallway was the uh, water cooler, and uh, it blew in both doors and killed Chip. Mm-hmm. So that was not a clubhouse. That that was a highly secretive computer center. There's there's um there's a you just alluded to one of the two stories that members of the Bader Meinhof gang when they were on trial um, yeah. would love to recount, and they were and they used it as justification for what they were doing. Um, one was this, and it's, I mean, it's honestly, it's obviously an appalling thing was, was that you mentioned that they, they would say that, oh, he was killed by a falling Coke machine. And to them, it made this perfect symmetry because they were, they felt at war with America and what they perceived as this Coca-Cola imperialism. And they thought that was symmetry. When, when you heard those stories, were you hearing those at the time or later? And what did you think when you heard them? I mean, I guess almost make jokes about that. Yeah, I never, I never heard of it until I read them on your website. Okay. What was your yeah, thoughts so, when you were hearing about that? Well, I, I sort of laughed. I, I, I don't, I didn't know where that came from because I was there and he wasn't killed that way, yeah. and it wasn't a clubhouse like I described. It, it, in fact, right, you know, I even, just, you know, my recollection. I'm 63 now. Uh, my recollection isn't that great, but I thought the bomb was closer because the building is sort of U-shaped. Yep. And and where that gentleman was standing was in front of some what I'll call like metal doors. And um, when you're facing the building on the right side was a computer center for I'll just call it the general base sorts of things, you know, human relations. Uh, payroll, that kind of stuff. On the left side, where I worked, was it was called Intelligence Data Handling Systems, IDHS. And that was for U.S. Army intelligence operations in, in all of Europe. And that's what I did. I, I had a top-secret clearance. Uh, we did all sorts of top-secret computer analysis, that sort of thing. And... Um, the, the area where the bomb went off was a parking spot for the higher-level officers. It was a colonel's parking spot, and he was on, you know, TDY or whatever, but, or vacation, whatever you want to call it, and where Chip and Clyde and, and Ron were walking out was the entrance to our facility, and it was really an office facility that led to the computer room. Yeah, and... and the building was always marked as a tank repair shop. That's how they disguised the building. Well, okay, so this brings up – this is the other um, myth, which which may or may not have elements of truth about it, that I've never really understood. Um, so at the trial, it, it did come out quickly that this was a computer center. And yeah. so at the trial, a lot of the members of the gang – Describe this again as they're part of their symmetry and justification for what they're doing was that yeah. they were claiming that, well, this was the computer center where they planned 
logistics for the bombings in North Vietnam that had started a couple of weeks earlier, the bombings of the harbor, um, the mining of the harbor that, that, that angered people so much. And they claimed that that computer center was somehow related to that. And so many people said, well, this clearly had to have been some kind of inside job. They knew where it, it was and they targeted that. I haven't heard anything to support that. It seems to me it's just as likely they parked at the first spot they could find. Um, and I yeah. never, I've never heard anything that told me that there was any inside person that told them they were right next to this computer center. Do you know anything about that? And was this, was there any programs being used to deal with North Vietnamese troop movements? Uh, I mean, uh, bombings no. or anything? No, no. Everything we did there was um, Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, we we did have, I will say, we did have some intel as far as Vietnam is, but we were more like a backup facility. It, it was it was not uh, an active thing. It was more acting as a backup, you know, data storage, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so so our main mission, and I think after 39 years I can talk about it, was really, you know, Russia. Eastern Europe, East Berlin, you know, true movements there, not not in Vietnam, not at all. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about that kind of stuff after all these years, but uh, I, I absolutely unequivocally refute that. That, that's, that. That's not true. And at the time, and again, you know, I was a, a spec five. I was drafted. I was I never had planned, you know, to stay in the Army, but... You know, the, the talk of the time was that it was just happenstance. You know, they just, they got lucky, so to speak. But quite frankly, their bomb did absolutely no damage to our facility. We never lost a beat. Uh, and, and the reason for it was it was so highly, um, I'll call it fortified. When, when you, if you were to look at a, a blueprint of that building, it had a, like a three-foot gap all the way around the wall, and inside that gap was a raised floor, lead-lined computer facility because, you know, computers of that age back then gave off radio frequencies, and the thought was that radio frequencies could be intercepted and interpreted, and then people would know what we're doing. So uh, it was, like I said, highly secure, highly protected, and you would have never known that was a computer room. Never known. So that we felt very strongly that that it was uh, just dumb luck that they, they blew it up there. And, and they really didn't do much damage. There was a little bit of damage to the office area. In fact, one of my jobs that I got stuck with was following a painter, a team of German painters around when they finally got the, the building back together and, you know, the office area up and running but the computer room never lost a beat. So what what exactly does a a computer look like? I mean, I know what the computers look like that I'm staring in front of right now, but what is a computer in 1972? How do you program it? How do you get information in and out of it? I mean, it sounds like well, ancient history to me. I mean, I'm 44, so it's like I was alive at the time, but it, I know that it was a lot more rudimentary than we would be expecting today. Yeah, so it, I mean, I don't want to bore you with a lot of stories, but when I first went there, again, being a draftee, I was only going to be in the service for two years, and um, and I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, of all places, uh, for the first year or after getting out of basic, so it was really eight months, and then I got orders for my last year to go to Germany, which was highly unusual, because usually people went to Germany with 18 months, mm-hmm. and... I had to interview with a couple facilities to get a job because they they didn't want to take a chance on me because um, I didn't have a top secret clearance and they'd have to spend a couple of months getting me a top secret clearance that costs money and takes time and all that. Sure. Well, there was a cap. There was a captain. I don't remember his. Well, I think his first name was um, Robert. Jackham, either, yeah, I think it was J-A-C-H-I-M, he interviewed me and sort of said, well, if you want to take a step down and be a key puncher, 
So if you remember, or maybe you don't remember, in the old days of computers, everything was on punch cards. Yep. And so the intelligence that would come in would be in the form of notes, letters, uh, photos with different coordinates on them. And we would key punch those notes and those coordinates onto punch cards. And those would then be taken into the computer operators who would then feed them into uh, an IBM computer, I would say, about the size of uh, three or four large refrigerators mm. and um, a lot of disk storage that was removable disk storage. Nowadays, everything's solid state and, and sealed disks. Back then, the disks were removable, big magnetic platters, so to speak. Yep. And... And uh, basically, we would then, that, that data was then fed into, well, it was processed on a large IBM computer, and then it was fed, that, that the coordinates and geography and data was fed into, um, I can't remember the brand name, but it was an unusual, oh, um, Gerber Plotter. And it was, a, it was basically a giant printer that was probably about 6 feet wide and 10 or 12 feet long. And this thing would plot maps of Eastern Europe and where there were troop movements and oil fields and ammunition dumps and things like that. Wow. Um, again, I'm supposed to be talking about this stuff, but, uh, you know, I guess I can... Well, the, well, the Berlin Wall did fall 20 years ago, so we're probably pretty yeah. safe from the Soviet army. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, so then, those printouts would be rolled up, and a lot of times, one of my jobs, being the lowest-ranking person on a ship, was to take those drawings over to another building in headquarters there. Oh, did I lose you? Still there? I think I've lost you, so I'm going to call you right back. Oh, there you are. You, you know, I can barely hear you all of a sudden. I'm in my car, and all of a sudden my Bluetooth went out. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you're back. Oof. Yeah. So, so anyhow, um, you know, they would take these these plots and drop them off at intelligence, and in the room where they would do that, again, highly secure. Uh, a guard. I never got to go in that room. I would just come over. I have to sign in, if you will. Uh, I would the the, the uh, printout would be numbered. You'd you'd log the number of the printout. Then you'd hand it to someone and leave. And from there on, you had no idea what they did with it. But never ever, at least while I was there, um, did we ever do anything uh, in terms of intel, like plotting. Uh, for Vietnam, nothing okay. at all. So let's doesn't mean behind that closed door they didn't do something, but from our computer center we didn't do it. Yeah. So let's talk about um, uh, Clyde Bonner, Ronald Woodward, and Chip Peck. Uh, yeah. What's your recollection? What, first of all, what jobs did they have? What were were their role in relation to you and and in relation to this computer center? Yeah. What What I remember, Captain Bonner was not, you know, computer savvy at the time of his funeral, and I didn't know this, but I believe he had done three tours of duty, at least two, if not three tours of duty in Vietnam, and at the time was the most highly decorated captain uh, coming out of Vietnam at that time. And, you know, that 1972 was just a couple years before the war had wound down. Yeah. And, and I didn't know that about him when I worked for him, but, you know, it was a... Uh, a humble person, you know, not one to brag, uh, but very thankful that, you know, he had this job in Germany, wasn't going back to Vietnam, and was able to be with his family, because I assume he had been away from his family in at least two or two, two, or two tours, or if not three. Um, so he was like, like a shift manager or supervisor, but didn't know much about the computers, the sure. computers themselves. Ron Woodward, what I remember of him was that he was a programmer, and I believe Chip was a was a uh, computer operator like myself. 
and um, you know, if anything had gone wrong with the computers uh, or any of the software, Ron took care of that. And Chip and I basically uh, ran the computers. And I, I had um, like three years of, well, I wouldn't call it computer science because back then it wasn't called computer science. It was called business data processing. Before hmm. I had experience with computers before I got in the Army, and technically that's how I got out of going to Vietnam. They just basically made me a computer operator because I was civilian trained. Hmm. And then while I, while I was in Germany, I had an opportunity um, on a couple of occasions to actually train, you know, enlisted men there and how to run them and how to operate them. Uh, but these were, at the time, state-of-the-art, uh, IBM, the the model numbers were IBM 360. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I remember that in my whole career, that's the only time that I had an opportunity to, to uh, uh, use and operate that particular model. But that was state-of-the-art at the time. And uh, But I, I had to be a key puncher for two months while they got me a top-secret clearance. So I had firsthand uh, knowledge of you know, the photos, the, the, the drawings, um, the, uh, the, the, the letters, the, the notes, that kind of stuff. Um, I, they gave me a temporary clearance to be a key puncher. And then once the top secret clearance came in, which had like four different levels associated with it, then they were allowed, then they allowed me to be a computer operator. But the time doing key punching was pretty fascinating because, you know, you would see pictures um, that clearly people had taken from in the woods of um, Russian uh, mobile, uh, you know, ICBMs or whatever, you know, uh, mobile rocket launching and that kind of stuff, uh, moving through woods. And and there'd be notes on the photos, and you could tell a person was, you know, taking pictures through the trees, that kind of thing. My God. They were they were and risking then, their lives. Pic- oh yeah, and then there were pictures of parades. You know, um, you could almost tell that the photograph was taken like from under a coat or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's it was fascinating work, fascinating work, a lot of camaraderie. Um, uh, I I would say uh, almost every, not every, but almost every person assigned there you know, were uh, either just learning computers or, or you know, just sort of getting in on the computer age. Um, you know, they were enlisted guys uh, uh, coming out of battle like Bonner, that kind of thing, and learning uh, learning a skill that they could use, you know, for the rest of their career in the Army, that sort of thing. And me, so, I was a short-timer. <laughs> so when you um, when you got back to the base after the bombing happened, at what point did you realize that your colleagues um, had been killed or had been injured or had you or I don't know how you heard about that? How did that happen, and what was your thought well, at the time? It was a imme- it was immediate because um, th- there was genuine concern about the damage to the building, so they wanted people back, you know, uh, because. Chip and Ron and Clyde were the only three there that evening. Mm. And and so they ran the second shift, and um, and there was no one there, for lack of a better word, to run the computers. Mm. So myself and, boy, for the life of me, I remember one fellow, his name was Richard Franconeri, F-R-A, Frank, F-R-A-N, Frank, A-N-E-R-I, I think it was. He was from um, Staten Island, New York. Uh, he came back. Um, he was dating a German woman, and he was trying to get permission to marry her and take her back to the States. Young guy. I, I think I was 23 at the time, and he was a couple of years younger than me, so he was probably like 20 years old, worked on Wall Street, had hmm. no intention of staying in the Army. He came back. And I'm trying to think the other fellow's name was Adams, Bill Adams, I think it was. And so we were allowed back in to check out the computers, make sure everything was okay, um, sort of finish up what was being done, was in the middle of processing. 
and we probably shut down, I don't know, um, eight or nine o'clock that night, just a couple hours after the bomb went off. So and we were, were they still cleaning up the, out of there. were they oh, still, yeah. were they still cleaning up the scene? Had they taken away the, um, the Bonner and Peck and, 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 uh, Woodward at that point, or were they still addressing yeah. that? No, no, they were, they were, by the time I got back within the first half hour, the, you wouldn't have, I mean, the, the the bomb car was all mangled and and pretty much blown apart. Captain Bonner's car was pretty flattened. Um, that was cleaned up fairly quickly. Um, there was concern that there might be other bombs because the other bomb went off. Mm -hmm. But um, we were all out into the building, and they basically had, um, I want to say, I would say less than 20. I can't say for certain, but you know, you know, the, literally, it wasn't uh, yellow crime scene tape. But they set up sort of a an area where people couldn't, you know, rubberneck and come into the area. That sort of thing. Yeah. What was so the mood like that night working on the in the computer lab? Oh, very somber. You know, I mean, these were these were friends. Um, you literally had to walk by the water cooler where Chip was pinned. Um, you saw the the spot where Ron Woodward died. Captain Bonner was blown to bits. I mean, literally blown to bits. There was a lot of there was. I mean, that fellow in his interview he mentioned that you know pieces of Bonner were in that tree. There, there was lots of rumors and discussion about that. So I don't. You know, I, I don't know the the truth but there was talk that his head really was missing mm -hmm. and that you know a couple of weeks later was found on the roof of one of the buildings in headquarters so so you know i don't know how true that is but like that other fellow he mentioned and being a public or a public information officer he may have had better information than mine but you know there was a lot of rumors about pieces of bonner just all over the place mm. um by the time I got there um, and the way they shuttled us in, we didn't see too much of the exact scene kind of thing. But, but you know, it was, it was pretty messy. Uh, part of the wall was crushed. Uh, obviously, the front entrance, the, the security entrance to our facility was, was pretty much crumbled, if you will. Um, they let us in through an emergency door. Um, it was like a side door that normally wouldn't be used, uh, and that's how we got in. Uh, and, and we weren't really, I mean, we were allowed through the office area. That's when we could see the uh, spot where Chip had died. But, uh, you know, they were they were taking photos and, and basically doing investigation. But it's certainly not like what you see on TV nowadays. No. Know? All these crime scene investigations—they clean that place up as quick as did, quickly as they could. Did you guys? Were any of you guys ever interviewed with the assumption maybe that you guys had let them in, or you know where they're looking later, trying to figure out how these people got on base and stuff? Was there an investigation that you ended up being part of in any way or anything like that? No, no, I I don't remember anyone being questioned like that at all. Quite frankly, what was the security like? after this was over, um, what, what was it like to get on base after this for your wife and other people to get on base? Um, I don't remember my wife ever going to Campbell Barracks. Um, we, you know, everyone had ID and like in her case, um, I, well, I don't remember my wife having ID, but like when we would go to the PX, um, with my daughter, uh, it, it, it literally was, you know, who are, they wanted to talk to you to make sure, basically, you should be there and you were American. And, and you know, just because you had a uniform on didn't necessarily mean, you know, that, that you should be in there. So everyone, you know, had ID, uh, uh, you know, females like wives and all that had to be escorted. She couldn't go, to the, that I recall, she couldn't go to the PX by herself. I had to be with her. Uh, as far as Campbell Barracks, um, 
you literally had to show ID. And if it was a car, the car was searched. Uh, and it was like a lean in, talk to the driver kind of thing. And, so, and quite, frank, quite frankly, I, I rode a bike into into the office every day. I literally, on I'd say several occasions, if there was a car pulling into the main gate to be questioned by the MPs, I hung back. I waited for that car to be cleared through or not because my fear was that, you know, they would get to the gate, they they would figure out who they are, and they'd blow it up right there. So, you know, I was very paranoid about going into work. Um, and if I saw a car at the gate, I'd stop, you know, 100 yards back from the gate and wait for them to clear it hmm. and then drive up. Did did you or any of your fellow um, soldiers follow uh, the case afterwards? When, like, I, I know a lot of folks I talked to, they they simply weren't aware of this terrorist group until this happened. Had you been aware of it, or if you hadn't, how? when did you start hearing about this Badr Mayaf gang, and did you follow it, you know, in the week and two weeks later when the leadership was all captured? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I know that, um, you know, we, when, when the bombs went off in Frankfurt, um, you became aware, you know, that there was this weren't they called at the time Red Army Faction or that's, something? That's their actual name, and, and they were sort yeah. of given this name of Bonner Meinhof Gang by the yeah, press. They hated the that name. Right. And, yeah. and, they, and they actually well, they weren't, because Meinhof was more of a sort of a secondary person, but it just it just happened to be that's how they named him. But you're correct in that Red Army Faction was the name they preferred to call themselves. And and that's all we heard. And, and you know, and, and it was sort of like, oh, well, yeah, okay, go back to work. And and you didn't think anything of it until, you know, the incident at the Campbell Barracks. And um, so then, you know, after the funeral um, service, you know, for the three soldiers, um, you became very aware. And, uh, you know, I sort of followed it. Um, I didn't I didn't read German, but, you know, this book. I don't even I don't even remember the Stars and Stripes articles that you sent. I don't remember those. And, and I. It just must be my memory. Mm. But, you know, we called home, and the Detroit News, I don't even think, gave it an inch and a half on page 24. Yeah. You know, so people at home were completely unaware of what was going on. That stuff just did not get back to the states. On, uh, one, on one level, you got to think, well, we're just wrapping up a war where 50,000 Americans had died. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. and, and I talked to, I've talked to some people that had been victims and witnesses at the Frankfurt bombing and they were saying, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it was a weird time when it seemed, it didn't seem as big of a deal at the time because soldiers were dying yeah. a lot more in Vietnam and it, and it, it just seemed like another place soldiers were dying. It's a weird way to look yeah. at it, but I think that maybe add to the reason why it wasn't covered so widely in the U S because this was a, a terrorist group that, declared war on Americans and was killing yep. Americans. I mean, this is, yep. this is, this is like the, the gentleman that was murdered in um, Frankfurt, you could argue was the first yep. American victim of global terrorism, terrorism in that sense, right? but it, it, it wasn't it, really noted at all. Yeah. Uh, I will say that uh, my experience, you know, in Heidelberg actually helped me in my civilian career because I would uh, tell people about my experience that day and the sh few weeks afterwards of, you know, what what it, we in the computer business talk about is disaster recovery, mm. you know, where, where you're able to, you know, maintain computer operations because of a power outage or, you know, some sort of, you know, uh, physical damage or disaster or whatever. And um, I I worked for a couple of banks and uh, eventually made my way into the automotive business and worked at Ford Motor Company for like 23 years, actually a total of 27. Um, and I used that to my advantage. You know, I mean, I, I, I talked about, I, I still today, talk about it. Um, I've got a couple of nieces that, uh, you know, for class assignments, they, they are supposed to talk to someone about uh, something that happened historically. And I've written stories about 
this event for a couple of nieces for classes and and um but but going back to 1972 um i do remember when they were captured i still talk about you know germans um shoot first ask questions second you know, <laughs> uh, where we don't do it that way here <laughs> uh, well during I, that I remember, time they definitely were in fact there's a famous uh thing that happened about i'm guessing about a week after the Heidelberg bombing where a Scottish, they'd got some honestly in retrospect, really bad intelligence. And they decided this Scottish uh, gentleman named Ian, Ian McLeod, I think his name is, um, was, um, was somehow harboring RAF members, Red Army faction members. It wasn't true. um, But he but they burst into his thing and shot him dead in the back. And, uh, and, and, but they were, they were so hopped up and, freaked out i mean the only comparable thing to an american is how we freaked out immediately after 9-11 a similar thing happened during that time frame when you were in germany they were utterly at a loss and thought geez our our youth are turning against us yeah well you know um i lived i lived on base for a short period of time but then when i knew when i got promoted from spec four to five um as a spec five which is considered like a sergeant, um, I could bring my wife over. So I rented an apartment in Kirschheim, and um, the uh, landlord lived in the first floor of this house. They had a, uh, a renter and their son on the second floor, and then my wife and I were on the third floor. And, you know, these folks were older, and the son's the two sons who were probably my age, um, they wouldn't give you the time of day, hmm. but the parents loved Americans, yeah. you know, mainly because the Americans paid them rent, but you know, they loved the Americans because we liberated Germany, but the young ones hated the Americans and and everywhere you went in Germany, that was, that was really sort of the, the feeling, you know, when, when you went to a pub where young folks hung out, you stuck out like a sore thumb. You you weren't wearing a uniform, but they knew you were an American and you, you were in the service, you know, probably because of the haircuts and all yeah. that. And, um, but you'd, you'd walk down the street and old people come up and thank you, you know, and, and oh, you know, embrace you and things like that. So it was, it was very, very unusual time where, where the, the young ones hated Americans and the, and the older ones embraced us. And, it just, it was very odd. So there's, um, there's the two women that I know of that drove cars onto the base. And I, I don't know if others participate, but one was Ermgard Mueller and the other was Angela Luther and Ermgard Mueller. She was convicted of the murders of killing Beck Bonner and, and Woodward among other crimes. Yeah. She ended up, um, she ended up uh, being part of that, tri- or actually, I think she was not part of the. There was a, an enormous, giant trial that happened in uh, Stuttgart that the leadership was convicted of. She was actually imprisoned with them, and after the trial, um, there was the, the, uh, in in 1977 there was uh, plane hijacking and and um, yeah, and an attempt that. to you know maybe secure the release of these prisoners and that failed so the leadership that was left which was um, Andreas Bader, Gudrun Enslin, his girlfriend, um, this man named Jan Karl Raspa and Ermgard Müller all decided to commit suicide in prison that night and the other three succeeded she didn't um, she stabbed herself with a bread knife. Although she claims she was the the state tried to murder her. Anyway, she ended up surviving and she was released after, I believe, 19 years in prison. At the time, she was the longest serving female prisoner, I think, ever in Germany, or at least at that point. And so she's she's been released. She's never, to my knowledge, never really seemed to apologize for her actions. She's still sort mm-hmm. of fighting the fight. And Angela Luther is another case of a woman who she's she disappeared right after that mm-hmm. bombing and nobody mm-hmm. has ever seen her since in fact as near as i can tell she's the only there's two botter Meinhof members that sort of disappeared one they're pretty certain andreas botter murdered her but luther 
she we I I I've talked I talked to another former terrorist and he says that he encountered some people when he was in hiding that may have seen her as she was working her way, you know, through various hiding spots in India and on her way to Australia, but she never paid for her crimes. She's been gone for 40 years and she's clearly probably still around somewhere. So what are your thoughts about these people, particularly like Mueller? She did serve 19 years in prison. She doesn't seem particularly apologetic. Um, Luther, who didn't pay for at all for her crimes. What's your thought about these women and the, this time frame and, and, uh, and them maybe not paying or paying the ultimate penalty for their crimes? Well, you know, at least in our country, um, there is no uh, statute of limitations on murder, and and I, I would put her, I would call her a murderer, you know. Yeah. So you know, it would be nice if uh, they could be hunted down. You would think with uh, all the technology we have today to find people and. You know, it's certainly not like the the Nazis and and you know the uh, the Holocaust, where you know people have made it their life work to track down war criminals. But that that's to me what they are, so to speak. Uh, m- maybe not so much war criminals, but they're terrorists, yep. and uh, they should be brought to justice uh, for what they did. And well, and you know, I I think everyone associated with that gang is is uh should be part of that and what happened in the in the like through there's always been this cultural mame that that continued and it's only recently it seems to be not as strong but for a very long time there was this element of these people being incredibly for lack of a better term cool and hip Mm -hmm. clearly because they were young they were leftist they they were sort of idealistic um but it it never seem but when people think that they tend to be dismissive of this massive amount of of pain that they cause so many people and also they seem to not realize this is my perspective having studied them that they were fantastically unsuccessful at what they did even if yeah. you found them cool they did not stop any they they the only thing that i near as i can tell if you if i were to look at it in retrospect is they made germany a much more conservative place um their mm-hmm. their theory was germany was had this hidden fascism and they wanted to expose that and they did i guess you could say that but they ended up making germany respond in a much more aggressive way and and germany stayed more uh, more conservative i would say i would argue they actually brought germany into more modern era germany was very much a, almost a vassal state of 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 america before that and this helped germany become more independent but that mm-hmm. said, that they weren't successful. They didn't bring about any revolution. They just killed people and ruined the lives of a lot of families of people that missed their loved ones. Yeah. And, and you know, it certainly wasn't necessarily as as sensational as 9-11, but, uh, you know, devastating to people. I mean, I, I don't want to say I think about it every day because I don't, but you know, it's fresh in my mind. It's it's something you'll never forget. And uh, I, when people talk about terrorism, and I, I will say, hey, look at, I know three people. I saw terrorism firsthand, uh, and I know three people, you know, who were killed yeah. because of it. Did you have so the opportunity to go to any of these um, these funerals? Were any of them held in Germany? Oh yeah, uh, all three were held in Germany uh, um, at, at the same time in the same ceremony. In the, uh, the it was very heavily secured. But yeah, um, everyone at at Campbell Barracks and certainly who was stationed there rallied around the families um, uh, for the funeral. If they were brought back to the states, I don't know. But a service was held in Germany in Heidelberg. Where where was it held? You know, I don't remember. Okay. I I remember it being a church, so I don't I don't recall that we had any churches on base, so it might have been in a local church. Mm. But it was a big church. Wow. Well, so what else? And, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I I'm trying to think the general 
Seventh uh, Army headquarters. I want to say was Davidson, Davidson, or something like that. Because um, I remember I got, I, I didn't get the because being a draftee, I didn't get all the awards that uh, most people get. But I did get a nice citation uh, when I left the service. Um, it didn't allude to that day, but it talked about you know uh, my job and and uh, uh, things that we had done while we were there. I don't know if they just you know had to keep that stuff secret or whatever. Mm. But it was a nice certificate. You know, I don't even know if I still have it, but uh, uh, I do remember the the funeral service. Uh, that was held in Germany. Now, they might have been uh, shipped back, like Ron Woodward is from, I think, Grand Rapids, uh, um, some somewhere here in Michigan. I don't know where Bonner was from, and I don't know where Chip was from. In hmm. fact, at, at one time, I'm trying to think, someone had told me at one time that they reported someone named Phillips was killed in the bombing, and, uh, you know, my wife had to get on the phone uh, and call her parents and my parents to say, if you hear anything to the fact that someone named Phillips was killed in this, uh, it, it wasn't wasn't Al. But, uh, like I said, the Detroit News barely gave it two inches. So. Uh, that's, well, it's kind of funny, but really awful when you think about yeah. it, the, yeah, yeah. the stuff you have to do to make people feel okay. Yeah. Uh. So hey, um, run. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I said I have to run. I, yeah, and I was just going to wrap up. Is there anything uh, else that I've forgotten to ask you about the last minute thing? No, I I I visited the website several times, and I think I've taken in all of the, uh, you know, the re, looked at all the video clips and and read a lot about it. I have not seen the uh, the movie, or wasn't there some sort of um, television show or something about it. I, yeah, there, well, there was a movie. It was nominated for an Oscar a couple of years ago called The Bottom yeah, Line of yeah. Complex. It's actually a really yeah, I, good, compelling movie. The Heidelberg bombing, the place where they filmed it, looks nothing mm -hmm. like Heidelberg, and it takes about yeah. 30 seconds of the movie. So you won't see yeah. anything there really much related to it, but it's mm -hmm. it might give you a little insight on what drove this gang and and the impact yeah. that Germany. So wonder if I can get it on DVD or something. It, like it definitely is, and if you have Netflix, you could watch it tonight on Netflix Instant because it's available oh, cool. on, online. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate all your time, man. You 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 kept apologizing for your memory. You have a fantastic memory, and it was <laughs> hugely hugely helpful. And and it's it's convenient because I'm working on this kind of mega project of compiling up all the stuff that happened in May of 72. And you've mm -hmm. given me a lot of detail and insight. That's hugely helpful. I really appreciate your time. Is your dad still alive? Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, I yeah. was just with him about an hour ago and he, my dad was the person that sparked my interest because he was a bomb disposal technician and, I, and um, amazing. <laughs> and it's so funny because the thing that started it all was we were having this conversation 15 years ago when they captured the Unabomber, my dad was being dismissive of the uh, FBI a little bit about their bomb disposal techniques. And I go, well, how yeah. the hell would you know? And he goes, well, cause I disposed bombs myself and I got twice as much training as they do. And I was going, what? I had no idea. Yeah. And he says, yeah, yeah. I disposed these bombs, diffuse these bombs of the bottom line off gang. And I go, who is the bottom line off gang? And, and I, yeah. and I, and I honestly, because my dad, didn't talk about this ever. I had no idea. So yeah. I researched it and it took me a couple months to realize my dad was mistaken. It wasn't bombs of the bottom of my F gang. It was this other group, but still it sent me off on this weird thing. And what's funny is pretty, my dad really loves that I'm interested in this, but it, I, I clearly have massively surpassed his interest a long time ago, but it is fun for <laughs> him to help remember his background too. So yeah. it's kind of neat. So Anyway, I really appreciate your time, and I'm going to put this up uh, pretty quickly. I'll send you a, a link, and 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 when I have my, um, when I'm finishing up my 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 big section of my book about that, I'd love to send it to you to see if there's stuff in there that strikes you as totally wrong or I've missed something, and that might be sure. really helpful. I, I definitely appreciate. I, that. I'd be glad to. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Thank you again for your All right. time. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bottom line, huh?
bottom line.